You're listening to Alternative Stories and Fake Realities Podcast. Parents, a selection of flash fiction from British writers. The Bear by Mark Anthony Smith. The coffee at the platform buffet is far too expensive. So we wait on the cold green cast iron bench without a drink. The train shouldn't be too long anyway. I look at my son with his ragged bear. He takes him everywhere, but has yet to give the soft toy a name. Since he started primary school earlier this year, Philip has become far more argumentative. He'll be five soon. We sit and wait on platform two. I ruffle the boy's hair as he talks to his bear. There's a man on the opposite platform, drinking from a disposable cup. The steam rises as he removes the lid to cool his drink. He looks at his watch, and I'm sure I recognise him. I think about shouting over. The name Simon is on my lips. Then he looks up. He isn't the man I know from working in the assorted sweets factory. I feel embarrassment. There's the memory of the taste of licorice somewhere in my mouth. Then I look away. I think about train journeys where I'd pass several stations without realising we'd pass them. The novel soon becomes habitual, I think. Philip's dad and I had bought our son the bear when he was born. He was so small then. Our son clung so tightly to the bear when his dad finally left. Our love had grown cold as our baby needed attention. Philip's dad was never one for kids, but he didn't really know that until it was too late. He didn't want to grow up. I really want a cigarette. The wind blows through the exposed platform as it whips up leaves. I smile at the thought of excuses for train delays. Philip is looking into the bear's eyes and telling him about Grandma. If we're good, then there'll be sweets and cake. Yes, as much cake as you can eat. But you mustn't go through her cupboards. I smile. Philip always drags my mum's pots and pans out. He always makes a mess, and she never has the patience for him. I look at my watch while shuffling my feet to keep warm. Mummy? I look to the right. It's coming, Philip. Come on. The train rolls in. I grab his shoulder as the doors open. A few people get off with suitcases and look relieved or confused. Then we step aboard the carriage, and I steer Philip to the left. We find our reserved seats on the quiet coach. Philip sits by the window. I'm just putting our small bag in the overhead compartment when he starts to cry. What's the matter? He sobs. I haven't got bear. I calm him and then tell him to wait. I hurry off to the bench on the platform. There are still passengers alighting with suitcases. The man with the cup is sat where we had sat, 
Excuse me, that's our bear. I almost apologise. The man, quite alone, looks up. Oh, you're quite mistaken, he frowns. I bought this bear in real. I can feel my anger rising. No, it really is our bear. I look at Philip for some kind of reassurance. He bangs on the window with his small fist. His words are silent. Then the train pulls away, and I really feel the cold. Sorry by Della McEwen. Read by Afia Yale. Large snowflakes are falling from the sky and decorating my black hair with frozen crystals. My boots are nice but weren't designed to ward away the cold, and I'm flexing my toes to stop them numbing further. It's 2am and the world has frozen to a stop, leaving just me and him staring awkwardly away from each other. Smoke hangs off him like a ghost as he inhales his fourth cigarette since we got here half an hour ago. He's wearing several layers of trousers and jumpers that hang from his gaunt frame. Every item of clothing is ragged and stinks of filth. The skin on his lips is cracked and peeling, like rotten wallpaper, and his bloodshot eyes sink into the back of his head. He pulls out another cigarette. His hands are trembling. I appreciate the Sahima, I really do. He smiles at me, same old charming smile. Some of the gleam has been lost, however. His teeth are like an emptying graveyard. The leftover headstones are turning black and crumbling from lack of care. Can I nick one, Dad? I ask, needing to do something with my hands. You can have anything, darling, he says, and slips one from the red carton. I take it from his long, spindly fingers and pluck it in my mouth. He holds up his lighter and uses his other hand to protect the dancing flame from the snow. I fill my lungs with noxious smoke and turn away from him. If I could have anything, it wouldn't be this. I want him to go back to when he stole all of his eldest son's savings. But that won't happen and now Raph won't speak about dad anymore. I want Tia, my little brother, who loved our father with his whole heart, to get back the time he wasted on him, the times he let him stay in his tiny flat, cleaned up his vomit and said no to following his boyfriend to Italy because what if dad needed him? But when mum died and Tia found dad stealing the jewellery she left for my daughter, it broke Tia. You have to really try this time, I tell him. He puts his head down and nods. Because this is the last time, Dad. 
I know I'm going to give it my all, he promises. He promised before and I want to believe him. I'm not sure why anymore. He showed up at my door this morning. I hadn't seen him in almost seven months, but he stumbled in and begged for help. Brad wanted him gone, but he's my father. I can't just throw him out in the cold. Brad and I stood in our kitchen fighting in hushed voices. He wanted that man out of his house. I did, but I fought against him. A scream punched me in the gut, halting our fighting, and I was up the stairs and in the bathroom before I even realised what I was doing. Maggie, my perfect little girl, with curly hair and eyes so big they filled her face, was crying on the floor. A used needle had fallen out of my father's bag and it was sticking out of her little foot. Dad was apologising, but I pushed him away and gathered Maggie in my arms. Brad rushed us to the hospital and we demanded every test known to man. It took all day. By the time the clock ticked 10pm, the doctor took us into his office to explain that nothing appeared on the tests. I cradled Maggie in my arms, my fingers brushing her wavy hair and swallowed the sick feeling churning in my gut since morning. They wanted her retested next month. I told him I wanted her retested next week. Brad and I were silent as we drove away from the hospital. When we got home, he took her into his arms like he was carrying the finest china and took Maggie to her everything-must-be-yellow bedroom. Pack your things. I'm taking you to rehab. And if you fail it this time, then you aren't allowed near my house or my family again. Do you understand me? I suck in one last drag of my cigarette, then drop it into the snow. It hisses pathetically for a moment before it's drowned. Ready to go in? He finished his cigarette and nods. I'm ready. He puts his arms around me and hugs me tight. I hug him back. I'm sorry, he whispers. And this time I think he means it. Finally, we let go of each other and he turns his back and walks into the rehab centre. A tear runs down my face. I wonder if it will leave a trail of ice. I turn my back and head into my car and turn the heat up as high as it will go. I use my teeth to pull my gloves off and put them in my pocket. I pause, then feel around in my now empty pockets. Tears spilling. I drop my hands and press my face into the cold window. A figure runs away into the distance, but I close my eyes so I don't have to watch it leave again. I'll cancel my cards when I get home. My Mum by Lena Stone, read by Joy Hayward.
It's weird how the caring role can flip so suddenly. Until I was 18, my parents did everything for me, from emotional support, shoulders to cry on, wise words and practical advice to money lending or gifting. From being a taxi service to providing of the roof over my head and the holidays we took. They'd buy me books and everything I needed for school or college, and they'd fund my phone, my computer and all I needed to get by. Then one day, my dad left in a rage of alcohol and expletives. The latest in a series of increasingly abusive outbursts they'd somehow managed to shut me out of until that point. When I tried to put myself between him and mum, once it looked like he'd raised his fists to her, he pushed me aside like a ragdoll, and as I fell onto the cold floorboards, I knew in that moment life would never be the same again. Jamie calls. You coming out tonight, Jen? I'll think about it. You going to the Red Lion? Who's going to be there? And of course, I know I'm not going to go, but I keep up the pretense because... Just because. I'm not going because Mum is mid-meltdown once again, sobbing on the sofa in front of EastEnders, every slight suggestion of divorce or male aggression in the storyline triggering her own still-too-raw flashbacks. I wait till the closing titles end and snuggle next to her. Mum... We can't go on like this. It's been six months and there's not a day where you haven't shed a tear. You don't know what it's like for me, she says. And I want to say, you don't know what it's like for me. But I know I mustn't trivialise her feelings. Now I suppose I'm her carer. Dad sends some money each month, but nowhere near enough. My Saturday job turns into a weekend job, waitressing at the cafe in the local garden centre. I'm working on the bar at the Students' Union three nights and two lunchtimes each week. It's a seven-day-a-week thing for me, studies crammed into the breathless hours between shifts and making sure mum is okay. I'd once planned to go to university at Leeds or Manchester, living the life, dipping a toe in the waters of freedom and independence far from home, attending their open days with wide-eyed excitement at the times I'd have and the people I'd meet. I had to change my plans to the local college tweaked my expectations of a philosophy and politics course to a more vanilla business studies degree at the last minute, because they don't offer any of those fancy, non-vocational things. She'd been signed off work since that night, a shell of the woman she was. Sometimes in her eyes I see the old sparkle, the emotional strength and intelligence that made her my role model as I was growing up. But it's rare now. I know that things change for everyone. They have to, as time takes its toll and parents become elderly and infirm. We all sign up to helping them, being the carers, supporters and advocates, as our parents were once all those things for us. But this isn't how I imagined it. She's 43 and I'm 20, but it feels like she's 80-something and I'm in my 60s. They tell me I should leave, my friends. Tell me to just... Get out. She'll have to pull herself together, get herself back on track. But I'm not going anywhere. She's my mum, and that means everything.
Father, Son by Siobhan R. Hodges. Asher stared into his bowl of cereal, pressing Cheerios under the milk with the back of his spoon. He didn't know why he'd poured himself breakfast, he had no appetite. Nor did he have any motivation to kickstart his weekend. He'd only come downstairs for company, and even that was scarce. His dad was sitting across from him at the kitchen table, sipping hot coffee, scratching his chin, typing frantically on his outdated company laptop. He had to do a presentation on Monday, and Asher could tell he was dreading it. The TV was on mute and the radio was switched off of the plug, eliminating any chance of distraction. It was as depressing as hell. Asher was suddenly drawn to the crow's feet at the edge of his old man's eyes and the permanent worry lines on his forehead. He'd always looked old for his age, and Asher was starting to see why. His job sucked royally. He was trying not to drown in a sea of debt, and then there was Asher and his younger sisters constantly running circles around him. The amount of times they'd ignored or back-chatted him, the amount of drunk phone calls they'd made to him in the early hours of various Sundays asking for a lift home from whoever's house, and then throwing up half-conscious in the back of his second-hand Citroen. He joked that they were the reason his hair had started greying so early. But was there some truth to it? Now that Asher thought about it, he couldn't help feeling like he'd ruined his father's life. Surely he'd had dreams, ambitions. Instead, his priorities were keeping these three ungrateful kids out of trouble and in school, while holding down a crappy job he only took because his girlfriend fell pregnant with their only son. How did he do it? How could anyone do it? His dad sighed, rubbing his stubbly face with his hands before slamming the laptop lid shut. That's when he noticed Asher looking at him. Yes? he asked. Asher bit the inside of his cheek. Right now, there was only one thing on his mind. What's it like being a dad? Surprisingly, his dad's face lit up. Son, it's the most rewarding thing. He leaned back in his chair and chuckled. Don't get me wrong, you and your sisters can be a real pain in the ass at times. But I wouldn't change it for the world. Really? Absolutely. Asher smiled. Maybe he was looking at it all wrong. Maybe grades, money and careers weren't everything after all. He turned back to his bowl of Cheerios, finally having the appetite to finish his now soggy cereal. Why do you ask? his dad asked, taking another sip of coffee. Because my girlfriend's pregnant. His dad's face turned red. You idiot. In Parents, You Heard the Bear by Mark Anthony Smith. Read by Tanya O'Sullivan. Sorry by Della McEwen. 
read by Afia Yale. She's My Mom by Lena Stone, read by Joy Hayward, and Father, Son by Siobhan Hodges, read by Devith Morris. All works are owned by the authors and used with their kind permission. Mark Anthony Smith's story, The Bear, was originally published by the online literary journal, Nymphs, which we highly recommend. You can find it at nymphspublications.com. Music and sound effects were by Chris Gregory and published by Scared Crow Music. The presenter was Kelly Winkler. Parents, Flash Fiction from British Writers was an Alternative Stories 2020 production for the Alternative Stories and Fake Realities podcast. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please check out the work of our featured authors. They are all part of a vibrant community of British writers exploring the possibilities of short-form fiction, as well as writing longer, more traditional pieces. We'll provide links to their social media and writers' pages in the show notes of this episode. If you haven't already, we'd be grateful if you would subscribe to Alternative Stories and Fake Realities to hear future editions of the podcast as soon as they are released. We're on all major podcast platforms, so you should be able to listen to us on your phones, tablets, and desktop devices. We always appreciate it when listeners take the time to rate and review our show in their podcast apps, if they are able to. Reviews on Apple Podcasts are especially appreciated and raise the profile of the show, ensuring that it reaches as wide an audience as possible. This in turn helps us to produce higher quality and more frequent content. Coming soon on Alternative Stories and Fake Realities, The Angel's Calling, a full cast fantasy miniseries based on a short novel by British author Victoria J. Price. The Lake Isle, a psychological drama set in London and Scotland. The Seeing Trees, a dark Nordic mystery drama based on a short story by Caitlin Felix. Poetry from Sarah Corbett and an anthology of poetry from Cornwall. A drama adapted from the acclaimed novel What Remains at the End by Alexandra Ford. New works by Sophia Berry, Clark Wainica, and Ruth Ann Reed. And our multi-part science fiction drama Black Box based on the brilliant novel by British writer Kevin Mannering. Subscribe to hear all of these and more on alternative stories and fake realities.